Good morning. I am not Pastor Ryan. It's okay, though. Sometimes I wish I was. What a cool guy. I'm Pastor Nathan, and uh, it's my privilege to serve here as one of the pastors at Arrow Heights. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. As we continue this series through the Gospel of Mark, we pick up this morning in verses 27 through 42. Mark 14, verses 27 to 42. We pick up this story after the Last Supper, around midnight, even into the wee hours of the morning here, on the day when Jesus will be betrayed. John's Gospel tells us that after Judas... The traitor received the morsel of bread dipped in wine from Jesus. He went out, and it was night. This is an hour of darkness. Jesus and the disciples go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is going to wrestle in prayer. Some see this as a moment of weakness for Jesus. But, in fact, this dark moment reveals Jesus' true strength. His unrivaled strength, his triumph. In the Garden of Eden, the first Adam enjoyed the fellowship of heaven, yet he failed in his mission. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, was surrounded by the forces of hell arrayed against him, yet he succeeded. He was triumphant in his mission. We see that triumph right here. Let's pick up in Mark 14, starting in verse 27. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Father, we confess your greatness and your glory this morning. This song I'm reminded of, you are beautiful beyond description. 
and too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension, like nothing ever seen or heard. God, we thank you that we can know you through this word that you have revealed, the revelation of amazing grace in Christ Jesus. We pray your spirit now guides us into the truth. For your glory, we pray in Christ. Amen. I don't know if you know this or not, but there is a rise recently, these days in, in America, a rise in stoicism. I recently read an article about this. It started off like this. It's a gorgeous October morning outside the Union City Library in San Francisco. Geese, those stalwart defenders of ancient Rome, whose alarmed honking stopped Gallic invaders from sneaking on the Capitoline Hill, peck at the grass. Inside, about a dozen people sit in the community room as the theme song from Rocky begins to blare. We're not going to have to exercise, right? Says one man. Welcome to Stoicon X, Bay Area edition. A gathering of local Stoics who wish to reflect on life and goals for the new year. For those who slept through philosophy class, Stoicism is an approximately 2,300-year-old Greco-Roman philosophy that stresses living virtuously, accepting bad things will happen, and constantly meditating on death. It's fun. Stoicism, following the ancient teachings of Zeno of Cyprus, whoever that is, and Emperor Marcus Aurelius of gladiator fame, is on the rise, I think, partly because of authors like Jordan Peterson, podcasters like Jocko Willink, and for decades now, of course, Spock, a great Stoic. Many have tried to draw parallels between Stoicism and Christianity. Be firm. Accept what providence brings to you. Of course, providence being defined very differently in Christianity. But I think that this passage explodes any notion that Jesus was a Stoic. In fact, I think this passage explodes many ideas that people have about Jesus. If you've been following along through Mark, this passage comes as a bit of a shock. Jesus has been in control. Jesus is unflappable, always a step or two ahead of these Jewish leaders. Even here, he's prophesying to the disciples their future, telling them how these events are going to unfold. But then all of a sudden, something happens. Something changes. In this completely undignified moment, foreign to any Jew and how they would have prayed or related to God, Jesus throws himself on the ground. He's writhing in spiritual anguish and pain. Luke's account says he's sweating droplets of congealed blood. So great is the pressure on him. He's pouring out his soul in prayer. He's saying the same words again and again to a God who apparently does not answer. Then he stands back up. And he walks out to meet those who will arrest him and attack him and torture him. And it's almost like things are back to normal. What kind of Messiah is this? What kind of suffering is this? What kind of God is this? And the answer is the true one, the true Messiah, the true suffering 
that suffered for us, the true God. In this hour of darkness, apart from the cross itself, the darkest moment in the world, Jesus reveals he's the true Savior. He's the true shepherd who will lay down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd is the Lord Jesus who leads us through the valley of the shadow of death because we all face these dark hours. As we, as we walk through this passage, I'd like us to, to look at four truths about the good shepherd, truths that we need as we walk through the darkness. The first is this. In the hour of darkness, listen for the good shepherd who speaks the word of God. In the darkness, listen for his voice. After the supper, Jesus and the eleven remaining disciples leave and head across the Kidron Valley. And probably at this time, as they get to the bottom of that valley, they would have stepped over this brook. And in that brook, there would have been water mixed with blood from all the lambs that had been sacrificed in the city for the Passover. They're headed to the Garden of Gethsemane, possibly a property that was owned by an acquaintance of Jesus or, or one of the disciples. John tells us in John 18, too, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So as they walk together into that dark place, having just had the Lord's Supper and this fellowship and these words of comfort from Jesus, Jesus turns and says these shocking words, you will all betray me. You will all fall away. Your strength will fail. Push comes to shove. You will abandon me. And unsurprisingly, Peter is the one who protests. In verse 29, he sticks out his chest and he points at these other wimpy disciples and says, even if they all fall away, I will not. So Jesus gets even more specific there. In verse 30, you can see he said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, twice, you will deny me three times. A threefold denial conveys this utter, complete denial. So verse 31, Jesus, uh, sorry, Peter comes back, but he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. That's easy for us at this point to just look at Peter and say, come on, man, really, again. You're going to challenge Jesus. It does not go well when you contradict the Lord, okay? So can you just keep your mouth shut, show a little bit of humility? But right when we start to think that, and let's be honest, we've all had thoughts like that about other people, about other believers. I can't believe this guy. I would never talk like that. What's wrong with this lady? And immediately, when we start to think that, we should be drawn right back here to the very end of verse 31. They all said the same. That's a, a little Bible reminder of saying, had you been there, you would have been the same. You wouldn't have done any better. We, we have to take this to heart in a very practical way. Pride Proverbs says, comes before destruction. Proverbs also says, he that trusts his own heart is a fool. In that dark place, instead of convincing ourselves that we're so strong, we should instead listen for the voice of the good shepherd. He's speaking the word of God. How did Jesus know all of this about these disciples? How does he know 
about you and your future and your needs? How does he know so much? Well, first of all, he is God, the Son. He has supernatural knowledge. The church confesses that Jesus is both truly God and truly man. He did not give up his divine nature and the incarnation, but rather he took on our human nature, yet without sin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And in his incarnation, there are times when a communication of knowledge happens from the divine nature to the human nature. Dr. Sproul explained it like this once. Things only God could know were communicated to Jesus' human nature so that he could foretell the future with perfect accuracy. So he has this supernatural knowledge as the unique God-man. But he also, if you, if you read here, he has scriptural knowledge. All of this was predicted beforehand in the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, the Lord says, Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Again, Jesus is that good shepherd. And as sheep tend to do, when something happens to their shepherd, they start just scattering wildly, trying to figure out what they're going to do and how they're going to be safe. And as Jesus predicted, it was just going to be a few hours later. The questions of a little girl are going to send big, tough Peter scattering trying to find safety away from the danger, away from Jesus. Here's some good news. Jesus knew the rest of Zechariah 13. As he often does, Jesus quotes a snippet of the prophecy, but the whole context is in mind. In the same way here, Jesus points beyond his death to his resurrection. That's Zechariah 13 as well. The scattering of the sheep is not the end of the story. This crisis is part of a refining process that will result in the cleansing of sin. It will result in a new people of God who call upon His name. There is hope. There is life beyond this dark death. So that's the promise of verse 28. After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. There is resurrection. There is restoration. Galilee is the place where Jesus is going to regather them and reconstitute them. He's going to say to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, the risen Lord. Go, therefore, make disciples. And that is such encouraging news for us. Because we're in verse 31 as well. We would have done no better. We have done no better. Isn't it a great thing that God uses imperfect, stumbling, sinning, falling people like you and I, and he picks us up, and he forgives us, and he sets us on a new path. There is a Galilee after Gethsemane. There is resurrection and restoration after we fall. Psalm 103 is very encouraging. He knows our frame he remembers that we are but dust hear his voice listen to this promise of resurrection hope you know my family and I just recently finished reading a story about resurrection hope it's called the wing feather saga we got to the end and and I cried like a baby just me actually they wanted to cry but it was just me I cried 
It's a beautiful story. If you haven't read it, maybe close your ears. But at the end of that story, the oldest son, Janner, gives his life in this sacrificial, loving act to save his people, to bring renewal to his, his land. And after a time of mourning, like the next day, early one morning, the, the younger brother, Kalmar, shows up with his uncle, Artham, and they're riding the backs of dragons that have been tamed, which is awesome, very awesome. But as they ride in, Janner's mother and sister are invited to join them on an adventure. Kalmar, what are you doing? Their mother asked. Uncle Artham and I have been talking, Kalmar said. We remembered there's this well deep in the black wood. It's been lost for years and years. Their mother looked slowly from Kalmar to Janner's body and back again. And I know where it is, Kalmar said. They say the water does amazing things, said Uncle Artham. They say it heals, maybe even more. I've wanted to taste it for such a long time. It's worth a try, Kalmar said. Either way, it's going to make a great story. Kalmar mounted the other dragon and held out his hand to his mother. Are you coming? Now, people say, look, that's just a story. And of course it's just a story. But the dark of the heart is a darkness deep. The sweep of the night is wide. The pain of the heart when the people weep is an overwhelming tide. And yet, and yet, when the tide runs low, as the tide will always do, and the heavy sky where the bellow blows is bright at last and blue, then the light of love is the flame of spring and the flow of river strong and the hope of the heart as the people sing is an everlasting song. The winter is whispering green and gold and the heart is whispering too. It's a story the maker has always told and the story, my child, is true. In the hour of darkness, listen. Listen for the story. Listen for the voice of the good shepherd who speaks the word of God. Second, in the hour of darkness, learn from this good shepherd. Learn from the good shepherd who steals you. And I don't mean S-T-E-A-L. I mean put steel in your spine for the work of God. As they arrive at the destination, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, the trio, deeper into the garden. He says in verse 38, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Simple instructions. Essential instructions for those who are walking into the darkness. Instructions they did not follow. Instructions that they just failed miserably at. Three times Jesus returns. Three times they're just slumbering and sleeping when they should be praying. They should be loving their friend, but they're just uninterested. They should be riveted, but they're bored. The most important event in the history of the world is about to take place, and they're just slumbering and yawning. You know, when you think about this, as Jews, these men would have known the work of the high priest. They would have known that the high priest went in once a year to the Holy of Holies, 
They would have known that he offered sacrifices and prayers on behalf of the people. They would have known that they tied bells onto his clothing just in case he died in there. They would know when the bell stopped that the awesome, holy presence of God had struck him down. They would have known all of these things. Now imagine these disciples had been invited to go with the high priest into the Holy of Holies. They would have been terrified. They would have been wide awake. But here is the true high priest. Here is the Messiah, the promised one. Here's the one to whom all of the Old Testament temple rituals, all of the sacrifices and all of the priestly service, it all pointed to this man, the, Jesus, the Lord Jesus, Jesus the Christ. They're watching him go into an even holier place where he falls on holy ground, where he offers all of these prayers on behalf of the people, preparing to make the once-for-all sacrifice. And they yawn. They don't even care enough to stay awake even one hour. They're clueless, these disciples. But Jesus is so patient with them. He returns to them again and again. He returns to them to instruct them, to teach them this key lesson that is whatever work God has for you to do, watch and pray. This is the way Jesus wants to put steel in our spiritual spines for the work God has for us. You know, you don't have to be Albert Moeller to realize we live in a culture that is darkening. When you think about all of the sexual revolution and the, the COVID pandemic stuff and all of the political divisions and all the wars and rumors of wars. This is a dark time in which we live. Many are tempted. They're tempted to despair. Tempted to worldliness. They're tempted to fear or anger or anxiety. But here's Jesus' watchword for us. The same as it was all those years ago. Verse 38. Look at it one more time. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch and pray. You know, Paul kind of spelled out that instruction to watch. He said, watch your life and doctrine. Watch your life. Are you living in accord with what God's word plainly says? Are your habits of life Sleeping and eating and activities, your, your church attendance, your entertainment choices, your personal devotions. Are they reflective of a primary allegiance to Jesus or do they reflect a primary allegiance to your immediate comforts, your worldly pleasures? Watch your life lest you drift off to sleep and miss the work God has for you in this critical Hour. His work is better for you than whatever work you could come up with. Paul also says, watch your doctrine. Are you holding to and continuing to strengthen your grip on the faith once for all delivered to the saints? Are you following Jesus in a commitment to study and live out the teachings of the Bible? We must watch. Watch your life in doctrine. Also, we must pray in the hour of darkness. If you watch your life 
and doctrine very closely, you're going to realize you can't do this on your own. You're going to realize you need help. You're going to realize if it's up to you to watch your life and your doctrine, it will not go well. It will not end well. We must pray. And that's why Jesus says, watch and pray. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus teaches us to watch and to pray. Same lesson Jude taught us. The Lord's brother, verse 20 of Jude, it says, Keep yourselves in the love of God. Then just a few verses later, he says this prayer, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before his presence. If you are going to be strengthened and steeled for the work God has for you, you must watch your life and doctrine. And you must pray. And Jesus models for us what this means, what this looks like. Jesus models true prayer. Prayer is not an exercise of putting away our desires. Prayer is a way of taking our desires and putting them in God's hands. That's what prayer is. It's a practice of faith. Trusting that whatever plan we have, our Father's plan is best. His sovereign power will see it through. His love is enough for us. You know, whenever you walk through the hour of darkness, the world will have half-baked ideas and half-baked advice for you. Did you know that? When you walk through darkness, the world will be screaming at you or maybe whispering very subtly to you. First, you know, the, the world will say something like this. I know you're walking through darkness, but your happiness really depends on your circumstances. That's a half-truth. Then it'll offer this half-baked advice. If your circumstances don't make you happy, just change them. Or maybe just leave them. Leave that spouse, leave that job, disown that kid, leave your church, drown your sorrows, end it all. The Bible has much better advice. The Bible says happiness is a good thing, but it is not the only thing. The Bible says your circumstances are important, but they are not ultimate the Bible says, watch and pray. Jesus wants to steal you to find happiness as you glorify him in your circumstances. And more importantly, as you find holiness and satisfaction in him above and beyond your circumstances. Because I'm just here to tell you, your circumstances are never going to work out. We're all going to walk through the darkness. So Jesus does not deny the desire for happiness. He does not squash emotions and simply say, do your duty, like the Stoics might say. No, he shows us real prayer is this, acknowledging human desires. Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. But real prayer is trusting God's heavenly desire. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Whatever work God has for you, it will not be 
as significant and world-changing as Jesus' work, but it's important work as we follow him. It is essential work. It is eternal work because everything we do in his name for his glory is never, the Bible says, in vain. So, whatever work you're doing, however small it may seem, it's important. And Satan will want to oppose it. And so you must watch and pray. And then you can do what Jesus did and stand tall and walk out to do whatever it is God is calling you to do. Here's the third thing. Look to the good shepherd who suffered the wrath of God. Verse 33 tells us Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. That word distressed, it carries this, this sense of alarm, even kind of being shocked with horror. And, and the Bible says he began to be greatly distressed. It tells us that Jesus, who's been so steady all along the journey, is perceiving something. He is seeing something new about what he is going to suffer. In his human nature, he's sensing the closeness of the cross as it draws near. By the way, just a brief aside. This is just, this is just for free right here. This is one of the classic examples of why we know the story of the gospel is true and historically reliable. If, if anybody was going to be making up kind of a religion or trying to build up this normal everyday guy Jesus into something else do you think that right at this crucial moment they would say and then he fell down and cried before the, the hour had come then he prayed and, and did not receive the answer that he initially wanted do you think that someone would make up this story and these secondary kind of heroes here are literally just asleep they're clueless it's kind of funny in a way they have no idea what's even happening. These are the heroes who, who wrote this story. Are you kidding? But the best explanation of this is, is simply that this scene truly happened. No one would make this up. That's, that's, that's enough of that. People sometimes wonder, so what is happening with Jesus here? What is his problem? Why is it all of a sudden so upsetting? What is he now seeing that he begins to be so greatly distressed and the answer is there in verse 36 Abba Father all things are possible for you remove this cup from me all throughout the Old Testament the cup is the symbol of God's wrath against human evil just one example among dozens we could point to Isaiah 51 verse 7 wake yourself Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jesus knew that passage. Jesus knew what was happening. So all of a sudden, it's not like he's just, oh, I'm actually afraid to die, or I'm afraid of the physical pain, or I'm afraid to do what the Lord wants me to do. No, what's happening right here in this hour of darkness is Jesus turns to the Heavenly Father and what he sees is hell set before him. Here's the cup that you will drink. 
the father gives him a glimpse of what he will bear. He begins to learn the full weight of the sin he will become as he bears the curse. The Son of God sees here in a new way what it will mean, in Paul's words, to be put forward as a propitiation, as a, as a wrath-bearing sacrifice by his blood. This causes him sorrow so great it nearly kills him. In verse 34, my soul is sorrowful even to death. So listen, if the sinless Son of God is getting just a glimpse of what it means to suffer under God's wrath and it causes this kind of distress, how much more should sinners like us fear suffering that wrath for all eternity. The Bible teaches in 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In other words, you and I are born enslaved to sin. And the crazy thing is, we actually like it. We are twisted just at the core of who we are to love evil. To enjoy sin and selfishness and sensuality. We experience so many good things from God's hand. And yet we just take it for granted. Maybe we do some sort of penitent thing. Or maybe we offer some sort of sacrifice or give to the church. Or do some good deeds or whatever. Just to sort of appease God. But the Bible just looks at that as just filthy rags. In our day... When people hear the bad news that God is angry with sin, one of the, one of the strategies is they say, you know, I don't, I don't believe in a God like that. I can't believe in a God who would actually send people to hell. I believe in a loving God. That's what people say. Now, <laughs> listen, of course God is a loving God. And we preach in this church the love of God all the time. But if you think about it for about half a minute, to have a loving God, you've got to have a God who hates what destroys what he loves. You have to have a God who is full of anger and wrath at injustice and suffering and murder and evil. He, he hates these things. That's why we have verses in the Bible like Psalm 5.5. 5, God hates all evildoers. Psalm 7.11. God is a righteous judge. A God who feels indignation every day. And when you think about that, God's love and God's wrath, they go together. God's wrath is an expression of God's love. Because he loves what is true and good and beautiful. Anger is not the opposite of love. Indifference. That's the opposite of love. I don't care. Like these disciples. They lack love because they're just, they don't care. Therefore, in the garden, we get a glimpse not only of the horror of God's wrath, but also a glimpse of the greatness of God's love. Because you see, God easily could have just left us in our sin. He could have just left the world to just spin out of control. He could have just left us to our own debased desires. He could have poured out his wrath on each one of us. And he would have been completely just. 
because of our part in dishonoring him and destroying his work. But, but what did God do instead? The Bible says God gave his one and only son. His perfect, obedient, beloved son. God the Father gave him over to death. He set that cup of God's anger and wrath before him and said, drink it. He gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him can escape that wrath. Shall not perish, the Bible says, but have everlasting life. And that is good news. Forgiveness is offered to you freely. Eternal life is offered to us freely because it costs Jesus everything. Jesus paid it all, the Bible says. The hour of darkness gives us just a little preview of what Jesus was to suffer for us on the cross. He's the good shepherd. He's going to suffer the wrath of God as our substitute. It's a substitutionary death. As one of the Puritans put it, Christ was all anguish that we might be all joy. Cast off that we might be brought in. Trodden down as an enemy that we might be welcomed as friends. Surrendered over to hell's worst that we might attain heaven's best. Stripped that we might be clothed. Wounded that we might be healed. A thirst that we might drink. Tormented that we might be comforted. Made ashamed that we might inherit glory. Entered darkness that we might experience everlasting light. He expired that we might live forever. Listen, in your hour of darkness... Remember that there is a darkness that is far, far worse. Infinitely worse. There is an eternity of separation from God. Separation from all that is true and light and loving and beautiful. Separation from the one you are made for. And Jesus took all of that for you. Isaiah 51, by the way, continues... It says, therefore, hear this, thus says the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people, behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink no more. How is that possible? The good shepherd who suffered the wrath of God for us. Finally, this, love this good shepherd who submitted to the will of God. At this moment, as Jesus is wrestling in prayer, there's still time. There's still time for him to back out. They're there in the dark. They're there in a place they all know well. They're outside the city. He could slip away. He could just escape into the night. And knowing what he now knows about what he will soon go through, it makes sense that he prays if there is any other way. But Jesus is a righteous man. He lives by faith. He knows his Father's plan is best. And so the final prayer there in verse 36, echoing the Psalms in many places, is simply this. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus saw it all. He saw the horror. And he, he, it shocked him how awful the suffering of being separated from God was going to be. So why did he do it? Why was he willing 
to offer his life and first offer up his will to the Father's will. Why did he do this for people who were such great sinners? Why would he offer his life for those who were literally at that moment taking his life? Well, you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 22. The first and great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And then the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus Christ was filled with love. The Bible says that guard your heart for from it flow the wellsprings of life. What flowed from Christ's heart was love. He loved his father and so he did his father's will. And he loved us. So he submitted to that will even though it meant he was going to be crushed for us. There's never been a greater demonstration of love to God and neighbor than Jesus Christ choosing to lay down his life for his friends. And no offense to any of you guys, but friends like us? What an act of love. Our love would never have endured this kind of suffering. It doesn't matter how much you feel like, man, I'm really giving a lot here. It is nothing compared to the love that Christ offered for you. No saint, no martyr, no hero of the faith, no angel of heaven could have possibly stayed this strong for this conflict of love. But because there was no other way to save those whom he loved, Jesus submitted. He took the cup. Jonathan Edwards once said this, The heart of Christ was so full of distress, but it was fuller of love to vile worms. Thank you, Dr. Edwards. Christ's soul was overwhelmed with a deluge of grief, but this was from a deluge of love to sinners, sufficient to overflow the world and overwhelm the highest mountain of sin. Those great drops of blood that fell down to the ground were a manifestation of an ocean of love in Christ's heart. So I just ask you today, do you know the love of Christ? Every other love that you have will eventually fail you. But not this love. This love right here is the love you are seeking for. And every other human love, no matter how sweet it is, is just a little whisper. It's just a little echo of God's love for us in Christ. That alone can satisfy our hearts. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. Love this shepherd who submitted to the will of God. You know, one of the heroes of the Stoics is the philosopher Socrates. And one of the reasons they love Socrates is because of the way he died. I don't know if you've read that story, but Socrates was very cool, very resigned to his fate. He, he decided, yes, I'll submit and take the hemlock and drink that. You know, they were essentially killing him. He almost has this sort of ironic, detached attitude. Very different from Jesus. And some have raised the question, did Socrates die a better death than Jesus? And the answer is, no one could ever die a better death than Jesus. Because no one ever faced what Jesus was facing. No one ever accomplished what Jesus accomplished 
in his death. What did he do? He carried the sins of the world on his shoulders. And he carried love for the world, love for you, in his heart. And though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead, he, he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he became obedient even to the point of death. Even death on a cross. The Bible says, being found in human form, God, sorry, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name of, that is above every name. So that at his name, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All to the glory of of God the Father. Listen to this Savior. Look to Him. Learn from Him. Let's love Him together, even as we worship Him now. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we have this amazing story. It is a story that is really beyond what we could ever imagine. This story of Christ suffering for us. We pray You just cause our hearts to be drawn into you, to love you, to serve you, God, to honor you with the life that you give. We pray, I pray here this morning for, for those who do not know you at all. They don't know your love. We ask that even now the Holy Spirit would bring conviction to men and women. God, that we would all surrender to you. We would trust the Savior who suffered on our behalf. Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done. It's in your name we pray. Amen.